Hi there. You might be wondering why this episode seems so short, or why I'm not talking about Smash Mouth and Britney Spears. That's because it's 2017, and uh, if you're listening to this, congratulations, you survived a pretty terrible year. Because of that, us here at Now and Again are giving you a little New Year treat. Our January schedule is going to change up just a little bit. Instead of side A and B releases on the 1st and 15th of the month, there's going to be a new release every single week in January. Starting with this, part one of a series called What is Left to Love from 2016, where I interview friends, podcasters, internet-type people, and ask them what entertainment they loved in 2016. Hopefully by the end of this, we just have a big catalog of recommendations that you can dig into. Additionally, interspersed between interviews, I'll be dropping in some of my favorite tracks of 2016. Make sure you head on over to cageclub.me, check out the show notes, where you can find links to everything we've talked about, and links to where you can find everyone who was nice enough to guest. Alright, without further ado, here's some stuff that didn't suck from last year. Jeff, a.k.a. Dickeye, a.k.a. Benghazi 2, wherever you know him from. Yes, that is me. He is here, and he is here to talk about what? Uh, I'm here to talk about uh, the comic book Chew. Uh, The last issue came out, I want to say, like two, three weeks ago now. Uh, It is one of my sleeper hits that I was surprised to fall in love with in the last year or so, right before it ended. So as someone who is kind of a lapsed comic reader... Tell me about Chew as a as a whole. I've never heard of it. Okay, so it is a creator-owned book um, by John Lehman and Rob Guillory. Uh, it's put out, or was put out by Image Comics. Um, it is about a world where, because of a particularly bad strain of the avian flu, chicken has become outlawed. Uh, it is illegal mm-hmm. to serve, eat, possess, cook, anything involving actual chicken. Uh, The FDA is now the highest level of authority in the United States government, Hmm. Um, and it plays out like a bizarre, like, parody of cop movies from there. It also has people with food-based superpowers. So, like, the main guy, uh, (laughs) the main guy has a thing where he can eat things and learn the memories of whatever he eats. Like, he can learn the history of what he eats, or if he tastes blood from a crime scene, he can get some info about who how the person died um except for beats he can't learn anything from beats and it just quickly spirals into this bizarre like pseudo post-apocalyptic slash pre-apocalyptic story that did some really neat and innovative like narrative things so what uh, other than the incredible uh definitely unique out there um like general plot and setting what kept you reading this throughout the fact that it is very clearly it was planned to run a certain amount of issues it ran exactly that long there is like no wasted space it's very um i'm trying to think of the word for it 
it knows how to use every single moment. It's very not minimalist, but efficient. Yes, that that's exactly the word I'm looking for. Um, it does a lot with repeating certain images, certain gags, almost like a movie. Um, so that each like you'll have panels that you just see multiple times, and they just becomes the, this like attached meaning to it, so that they can just do a page and communicate like half an issue's worth of story in three sentences. They also did a really nice thing where they basically told the end of the story throughout the entire book in flash forwards. So then you get to the last issue of the book and there's maybe 10 pages of new stuff there and it's just everything else now has context. So to you, what sets this, and maybe you've actually already said this since the same answer, what sets this apart from other, you know, some of the well-known comics that are out there, like ones that have gotten, you know, maybe their own TV shows that have ran a bit too long. What really sets this apart from those? Like, other than actually being good and not bad. Um, (laughs) The the art in it is fantastic. Like, its sense of humor, its sense of just narrative efficiency, there's no wasted moment in that entire book. Everything, like, everything that starts from that very first issue comes into play and means something. Um, In the five and a half, six years that that book went for, um, it also has a, you know, chicken, the cybernetic chicken that, is a top secret agent and that's just fantastic (laughs) so is there so is this just a series of stories or is there like an overarching no there's an overarching there's an overarching narrative it's really hard to describe because it starts as you know trying to track down one man and ends up being about uh aliens warning us to not eat chicken and the impending apocalypse if we don't heed their warning and psychedelic frogs that taste like chicken and the ability to carve weapons out of chocolate and eating dead baseball players to learn about their dirty sex lives. Well, it's something I have to ask then, as, as you say all of that stuff, and uh, from where I know you from and, and how I, I loosely know you, some of what you're describing comes off as uh, a little like random wacky monkey cheese humor, but I'm assuming it's a little bit more uh, pointed than that. It's It would feel more random if... So there's a thing in comedy where if you establish that one thing is true and then go, well, assuming that this thing is true, what else must be true? Nothing feels random as long as you have that basis and as long as everything is internally consistent. Um, It's the same reason the good Deadpool stories work because they start from a premise and then build on that premise so that every addition feels logical and consistent. Mm. Um, It's the same thing with, like, Dr. McNinja, the webcomic, who the writer Mm. went on to do a Deadpool-like series. It's a very silly premise, but once you accept the premise, everything follows from that first, like, set of, we accept this. Um, And and in a world where, you know, the FDA is the equivalent of the FBI, and NASA is the equivalent of S.H.I.E.L.D., like, everything that happens makes sense once you accept this bizarre world, and that, yes, there's a man who can learn things from what he eats. So I'm going to throw up, like, a general spoiler warning, like, right here. Um, if like Chew has sounded interesting to you, uh, stop now or skip to the next section because uh, I'm going to ask Jeff to talk about uh, the finale, the the, the final, uh, the series finale that he loved so much. So, what was it that you know? Sometimes finales really screw the pooch; they fuck up everything, and it's so bad that it retroactively makes some things worse. Uh, what is it about this final issue that that sold it? That really kept it with the exclamation point on the end of the it's, series? It 
wasn't so much the issue, like, the story itself in there. It was, like I mentioned, they did a thing where periodically throughout the book, like, it would flash forward to far in the future. They used those panels, like, those exact sequences in the final issue and provided context for it and wrapped up a few loose plot threads. And it ended exactly, like, I pretty sure i gotta go back and reread it i'm pretty sure they used the last page of the comic in a flash forward uh the last wow. page is him committing genocide against an alien race by the way um <laughs> oh, but shit. that is literally how the book ends and it feels like a cliffhanger and then you realize that no the entire last 59 issues up to and including the point where his girlfriend wrote a story so good uh it would kill anybody who had eaten chicken in the last <laughs> 24 hours an actual thing i swear to god it makes sense like, it makes all of that just work. Like, everything has led up to this one moment. And then it ends, and it just gets out of its way, and that's it. And you said it was 60 the, issues? Yeah, and it's an ending. That, it's something you don't see in comics too long, or very often, rather. Um, you see something get popular and do well, and it runs for forever. <clears throat> Walking Dead. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but they went in, they told exactly their story, and they wrapped it up exactly the way it should have ended. And so 60, is that one a month? So this uh, has been yeah, for it's been about five years. Five years. Yeah, uh, give me a second. I will actually tell you because I think there were a couple hiatuses in there. Uh, actually, no, yeah, it started in June 2009 and it wrapped up at the end of November. So about seven wow. years. Wow, that's and it's, it's kept kind of that tone and that quality all the way throughout. The early stuff is a little bit rough while they're still finding their footing and building an audience, but I'd say by about... The end of the first year, by the end of like the twelfth issue, it's really got its feet underneath it and is ready to go. So, is is there with this kind of out there premise? It it feels to me like it must be kind of targeted or some kind of like pointed satire. Is is that is there some it's, subtext to this as well? I really I don't think there is. I think it's mostly <laughs> just a riff on like cop shows and just having fun with it. Because I've seen other things from like the same writer and the same artist. Um, the writer is right now wrapping up uh, Judge Dredd versus Predator versus Aliens, which sure. is a fantastic you know match, and it's everything I would expect from a comic with that title. It has all three of those characters in it, and that is all I was looking for. But like everything I've seen from them, this just feels like more like a logical thing for the two of them to do. So, as kind of um, someone who. You know, isn't familiar with comics, especially, you know, seven years is a lot to kind of track down. I imagine they have like trades where I can get 10 at a time or something. Uh, Yes. Uh, There's a couple ways. The easiest is to get the trade paperbacks. Um, I want to say they're $15 a piece, except for the first one is probably 10 at this point. You can get them from any Barnes and Noble, Amazon, local comic book store. Support those, please. Keep me in my job. Um, (laughs) You can get them anywhere. They're super easy to come by. Uh, and now that it's wrapped up, the last one will be coming out in probably the next two, three months. And uh, there'll be a hardcover probably a couple months after that that collects like the last 12 issues in one book. And then a TV show that goes for seven seasons in a movie? I would love for there to be like an animated true series like uh, the old HBO Spawn cartoon. That would actually be incredible. Because there's an ending. There's It's not like Walking Dead. Dude, there's a point where it has to stop. Good. I mean, that's. I feel like that's something a lot of people uh, want to hear, whether it's about TV or book series or whatever. It's just like ever since like Lost, where they were like, "Yeah, we've got an ending," and then they're like, "We don't. We don't have an ending. Let's it's, just fucking make it up." It's especially refreshing in comics where like 
superhero stuff is designed to go forever with yeah. no actual endpoint. It's super refreshing to read a comic that started with the writer going, yep, I've got this planned out, and it's going to run 60 issues, maybe 63 if I do a couple like side stories in there, but I've got this thing mapped out, and it lasted 60 issues, plus I think like three side story issues. Awesome. That, I mean, it sounds... <laughs> it sounds unique. It sounds interesting. It is unique. Uh, it is funny. It is silly. It, the art is fantastic. It's worth reading twice just to catch the weird jokes in the art that you missed the first time. Uh, there's a man who strings a guitar with spaghetti. I mean, that's... <laughs> I don't know how else to sell that book other than go, yeah, it's just fucking weird. Cool. Well, I think you did a fantastic job at least selling it to me. Thank uh, you. Jeff, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am on the somethingawful.com internet comedy message board forums. Um, I am forums poster Dick Guy slash Benghazi 2, depending on when you read my posts. Um, I am also on the Twitters at, at Dick Eye Smash. And I think that's it. I don't have anything else I'm doing anymore. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and have an awesome 2017. Thank you. You too, man. Welcome back. That was more of my favorite music from 2016. Uh, but now on to someone else's favorites from 2016. With us today, uh, an old podcasting buddy of mine. Uh, this is D. D. how are you? I am doing well. Doing well. And what did you love in 2016? I know there wasn't much, but... So I have a feeling that I'm going to spend at least part of this cast on the defensive, but I loved Zootopia. Um, enough that I kind of Kind of intentionally, kind of inadvertently ended up watching it like three or four times. But only once of those in theaters, so. So, I'm not much of an animated movie guy. Like, I don't have anything against them. Uh, it's just I, I don't I don't end up seeing them. Like, I still don't know why we are letting anything go in Frozen. Uh, but what, uh, what about this movie, other than uh, maybe your potential furry fetish? I don't know. Uh, what, <laughs> what drew you to Zootopia? Yo, I thought we had an agreement on not ever recording anything about our um, our proclivities outside of out of podcasts. That's that's breaking golden rule. If I make this a furry friendly podcast, the numbers are going to go up, up, up. Yeah, but do you really want those numbers? Uh, hey, numbers are numbers, man. Podcasting is a capitalist industry. That's that's true. You could uh, you can turn this this podcasting thing around and make tens of dollars. So okay, so sell me on Zootopia. Uh, So you're coming in with absolutely no knowledge of the plot, right? Nothing. Except that trailer with, like, the the sloth talking really slowly or whatever. That's all I know about it. So that that actually did kind of – was kind of what sold me on the movie because I was like, all right, that that was pretty hilarious. And if there's even a chance that the rest of the movie is that good, like, you know, you can always run into a situation where you spoil all of the good jokes in the trailers. But that, that ended up not being the case. And um, so, so basically, it's a buddy cop movie um, set in this fictional world where humans never evolved, and so everyone is basically like this, um, like some kind of talking animal. So you've got like the talking rabbits and the talking mice and you know polar bears and stuff like that. And um, but like at the end of the day, they're still animals. 
And so they've still got, you know, things like some animal instincts and stuff like that. There's no carnivores as far as you can tell. Like there there are carnivores, but there's no like a like meat industry as far as anyone can tell. But like there are still like stereotypes about the different animals. So, like, you know, rabbits are have massive families and they're they're generally considered to be like very timid and and, and skittish, so there's like um there's no bunny cops and that sort of thing. And um and so what you end up having through the course of this movie as this um this main character who's played by Jennifer Goodwin, she decides to become a, a cop and she's a rabbit and she would be the first rabbit um, to become a cop in um in all of Zootopia, which like their police department is pretty much made up of like you know, like tigers and oxen and stuff like that, like big buff you know characters who can patrol. Mm-hmm. And so she's not really taken very seriously, and she deals with like a lot of prejudice, um, right right from the outset. Like there's, uh, you you see her like uh, I won't spoil the entire movie. But, like early on, you see her like dealing with a local bumpkin in her area who's a fox, and so like, um, and he's an asshole. So she gets this prejudice of foxes, and like, and like they he doesn't believe that she can become a cop, and like no none of her family believes that she can become a cop. And she ends up like going through a montage and becoming a cop because otherwise it wouldn't have a movie. And um, and what you end up having then is this examination of like uh, of like racism and bias and prejudice through the lens of this fictional world where everyone's an animal dealing with animal um, biases and prejudice prejudices and stuff like that. Because like you know this this one um, like the the other main character who's played by Jason Bateman is a fox, and so he's this like sly he's on the surface this like sly sneaky deceptive character. But then, like as time goes on, you kind of you begin to realize that he's just playing into a role that society has essentially chosen for him, and he's actually not really like that underneath. I gotta say, I'm kind of shocked that I didn't know more about this movie. Considering, I mean, this fucking year of all years, you feel like a movie that suggests, hey, maybe don't dislike people for how they look. Like yeah. there wouldn't be some sort of like alt right horrendous internet boycott. <laughs> Twitter trend or some bullshit like that. Like I'm genuinely surprised about that. I feel like because of the fact that it's a kids movie and so like the all the the typical people who would be on the internet complaining about it are obviously, you know, childless virgins who wouldn't go to see this movie. Um <laughs> they're probably not going to be complaining about a movie that they're never gonna go see anyway. And also probably just the fact that, you know, there's that layer of abstraction. It's not actually an examination of racism, like direct racism in society today. It's like uh, you kind of take a step back and look at it through the lens of this, you know, know, fantastic society. Maybe they're, you know, less likely to get up in arms about that than if it's like in their face. I don't know. It also came out early enough in the year that maybe people just, you know, hadn't gotten their, uh, their rage on just yet. So is there a plot beyond that? Like, are they are they oh, yeah, solving, yeah, no. like, so, so, animal Chinatown so, crimes or something? Yeah, basically. So so she starts out, and just like with no one taking her seriously on becoming a cop, once she becomes a cop, like, on her first day, no one takes her seriously as a cop. So her, like, um, superior, who's the chief, just assigns her to, like, shitty parking duty while you find out right at the beginning that there's this uh, case going on of, like, 14 missing animals who are all carnivores. Like, there's, there is a plot where, like, then there's a big case that she ends up having to solve, and the fox ends up getting kind of, like, dragooned into helping her on the case, uh, even though he's actually a con man and not, like, a, a cop. And then, like, it turns out there's this whole big conspiracy that's going on in the background um, 
that they uncover and you know eventually solve. Spoiler alert. Best animated film of the year. Then I, I don't actually know what other animated films came. Yeah, out. I, I honestly, uh, I, it's the best one that I've seen because I haven't seen anything else, so I really don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess maybe yeah, I can go to the. That was uh, a terrible question. I'm probably gonna edit that out. Yeah. No, I'm just gonna edit that out. That was a real shit question because uh, <laughs> I don't really know if there was. Much of the of the one animated um, movie that I saw this year, it was the best. And and also it's it's interesting because it actually did really damn well too in the box because it's the third highest grossing film of 2016. Yeah, usually there's an animated film every year that does gangbusters, and uh, I know this was the one this year. Yeah. So I guess you know if if it if it comes around, I'll uh, I'll check it out. Um, anything else you want to uh, say about Zootopia? Go see it for sure. I mean, it's definitely worth seeing. Like the um. The way that it handles uh, prejudice and racism is is a lot more mature than you'd expect to see in like a kids movie. That is, I'm trying to look up right now whether this is PG or G. I think it's PG, but still, like, it, it's treated a whole lot more seriously and maturely than you'd expect for a kids movie. And so, like, for that alone, I would almost say like it's worth checking out. Um, and everybody turns in a really good performance. It's got a great cast. It's got Jennifer Goodwin, Jason Bateman, Idris Elba's in it. Where would I know Jennifer Goodwin from? That name sounds familiar. Um, she's in Once Upon a Time, and I have no idea what else she's in. Maybe I just know the uh, name. Yeah, she, I mean, she's been in like a few other things. I don't know if she's actually had like a leading role in anything other than that. She's like one of the lead characters in Once Upon a okay. Time. Yeah. D, do you, can do can people find you on the internet anywhere? You don't have a Twitter, right? I I do, but I think I've posted once in the past like three years, and I got a notice that the account was suspended for people trying to get into the account. So I currently don't have a Twitter. I'm kind of a hot mess on the internet. Okay, well, uh, you'll probably be able to find D somewhere on now and again in 2017. Yeah, I really don't. Ha- I guess I really don't have that much of a net presence. <laughs> I I tend to kind of lurk. All right, well then, uh, D, have a great 2017. You too. And I hope it's way better than 2016, but it really doesn't have to try very hard. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this track is uh, off an album uh, by an artist that Dee and I have uh, have seen together in the past before. Uh, enjoy. I think transitions is going to be music, so um, welcome to the show, Jarrett Brown. Hey, what's up? How's it going, everyone? So, 2016, what did you love? So, I decided to go with one of the uh, better books I read this year, and it's not Springsteen's book, which is very good. I can also recommend it to anybody who wants to read something about a musician. I'm actually going to go with um, the winner of the fifty, the men's fifty freestyle and swimming swimming's book this year. Uh, Anthony Irwin is his name. He wrote this book called Chasing Chasing uh, Water, the Elegy of of an Olympian. Okay. And it's pretty much his rise from Olympic gold medalist, his downfall when he was actually getting out of the sport, and then how he got back into the sport too. So, like, sell me on that because. I'm not a guy who really watches the Olympics. I'm not someone who's too into like biopics, but like what is it about this in particular? Like if if I don't care about swimming, what will I find there that that makes me keep turning the pages? 
Anthony Irwin is essentially the punk rock Zen Buddhist of the swimming world. He's covered and completely sleeved on both arms. He basically went from this big world uh, champion in the Olympics. He won the gold in 2000, so the gap between his medals is 16 years. He went from this absolutely great swimmer. He was going to probably go on to do big things, be one of the high-up world-class sprinters in the swimming world, which is a big thing because the 50 is the premier swimming event. So it, mm-hmm. so it was like probably like he was going to go places with it. So he also has Tourette's, which is which basically was messing him up with his medication. With some medication, I should say, was messing him up with it. He couldn't find the right balance. So he went off his meds, and little by little, he just started to lose it, like lose interest in the sport because he wasn't he lacked focus. Two thousand three, roughly, was the date he left the swimming the world all the, the swimming world altogether and went around the world and traveled and got tattooed. And also played in a punk rock, couple of different punk rock bands that never really went anywhere. Okay, so that's interesting. That 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 has kind of sold me on it. It's less about swimming and more about personal yeah, his discovery. Life. It, it, yeah, it's cool. pretty cool. I mean, okay. He also talks a lot about how he got his tattoos, like in the middle of the book, which I found a little weird. But all the stories behind them are like really deep and in depth, like most of the tattoo stories should be. So like everything on, like he's detailing his. Life's journey yeah. through his like his body art. Through his tattoos, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I'm trying to find. Can a you pretty give me cool... an example of one? Yeah, I found actually the page. It was really close to that part I read. Uh, each tattoo is a time capsule, but what it was yesterday and what it is today and what it will be tomorrow aren't the same thing. When I first got the tattoo of the leaf on my left hand, it was tied to H.R. Geiger imagery and into a bad pun about songwriting. The little things I leave behind will come from my left hand, but its meaning has changed after it went down to my brother's wedding in Hawaii. The sunset ceremony took place beneath a large tropical palm on the Maui shore. As their first kiss consummated their union, a strong wind blew in from the Pacific, riding the leaves upon all of us. My leaf tattoo now is now bound up with that memory too. I'm sure. I'm sure more to come. Nice. That's pretty cool. That's that's interesting. So yeah. when when people say that somebody is like the punk rock this, that's you know not punk rock. Like the book that comes to my mind first is uh, like. Um, Kitchen Confidential, like, oh, Anthony Bourdain, he's the he's the punk rock chef guy, you know? Um, yeah. So, like, what sets this apart from all of that kind of, you know, we, we've heard all of this before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anthony Irwin essentially denies that, like, this was coined in a Rolling Stone interview, that term, which I absolutely, he, from what I understand, he absolutely hates that term as well. So it's kind of like a little weird that he used that people call him that. But just the lifestyle he lived in general, like, post- Swimming after that, after the uh, 2000 games, is mostly the punk rock kind of like world that he was into. He also kind of reminded me of you a little bit because in the book he said he the cheapest base he could find was hot pink. So I got that. I just was <laughs> nice. reading that and I'm like, oh man, this is like kind of sold me on that. Uh, but just I mean, not the tattoo, just like the way he lived. Like he after the Olympics, he won what is the world the world championships and got some money for it and bought a black Audi, which he named, which he dubbed Vader. And he was busted doing a 130 miles an hour in a 65 in it. That's so is it, is it really like navel gazy or is he just like kind of, is it less like self pity and like overcoming adversity or is it just like, he's just kind of owning his life and rolling with it and and celebrating it even in some ways. Yeah. He is pretty much um, celebrating his own life because when he was traveling the world, he kept, I kept reading over and over in the book. He kept saying that he was missing something 
Like, he couldn't figure out what it was. And then when he moved to New York and started teaching kids to swim again, he little by little realized that swimming was what was missing from his life. So it's more of a self-discovery than, like, self-pity, definitely. Cool. Awesome. Um, well, where can – if people want to find you, you mentioned you were on Twitter. Where can people find you? At Jarrett Brown is one word. And if you follow me, I will give you guys a follow back, definitely. All right, man. Thank you very much. Uh, hopefully you have a uh, kick-ass 2017. Hopefully. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Joining us today is the host of the Nameless Cults podcast, Michael Robertson. How are you? Hi, doing pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. So, 2016 wasn't a lot to love, but what did you love in 2016? (laughs) Uh, So, the thing I came here and picked out to discuss is uh, an album by a band called Pity Sex out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Their new album was called White Hot Moon. And so... How I got into this band was I, I had sort of been peripherally aware of them because they had been touring with some uh, some other bands that I like. And I saw them last summer, summer 2015, opening for Ceremony and really enjoyed them, but uh, still had never heard any of their music on record before. And um, I picked up this album. Uh, I had recently gotten back into listening to music on cassette tape um because uh-huh. friend of mine started up a tape label and i'd been putting out some stuff with him so i i finally got a working tape deck for the first time since high school it's nice because you can they're a little bit cheaper than records so it's a nice little you know not as much of an investment if you don't know whether you're going to like something or not so i picked up this album on tape and in a span of i think less than two weeks i managed to wear the tape out because i had listened to it so much Holy shit! which i had never first time ever like wearing out a tape that wasn't like something that was already very old i really really fell hard in love with this album to describe their music they're uh i feel like there's sort of a you know a style that's in vogue right now with punk bands and bands coming out of the punk scene where they're all kind of embracing the uh shoegaze thing of you know bands like Mm. my bloody valentine and slow dive and all that kind of stuff you know lots of effects pedals lots of very lush kind of dense guitar sounds and Pity Sex are kind of in that vein. Um, and But I think compared to a lot of their contemporaries that are doing that, they have a really strong grasp of just pop songwriting and great songcraft. And um, this album in particular, I, this is their uh, second full-length album, kind of third release after they had an EP and then another full-length and then this one. I think this is their best album. Great songwriting. They've got... Um, Two primary songwriters, uh, I believe the names are Brendan Greaves and uh, Brittany Drake. So they have a uh, male and a female singer, both kind of distinct voices. Uh, Brendan Greaves' vocals are very kind of uh, deep and bassy. And then Brittany Drake has the more kind of high register vocals. And both split songwriting pretty evenly between the two of them. And even within, you know, the songs, they go back and forth a lot vocally. The songwriting lyrically is very intimate. The The guitar sound is very kind of, I don't know, kind of warm and enveloping in that kind of shoegaze way, but um, still really crisply recorded. 
yeah, it's just just one of those albums that I kind of really fell into. And uh, it got kind of, from what I've been able to read, got kind of middling reviews, which kind of bugs me because um, I feel like this album kind of flew under the radar. I'm looking at uh, the only research I did because I don't I want to be surprised uh, by all of these recommendations mm. is um, Pitchfork gave it a 6.5. But that's like right, a 15 yeah. out of 10 in Pitchfork world. Like, <laughs> that is that, that's that's high marks. Yeah, I, I, I have like a grudge with Pitchfork. There's so many albums I like that I feel like they'll give a middling review and then nobody will give it a chance from from then on out. And yeah. yeah, it's just kind of a shame. And um, and this album, too, it's got it's kind of bittersweet because they also shortly after recording this album and touring off of it announced that they were breaking up so this is kind of you know it's already in kind of a niche spot musically where only people that are kind of already into the bands that are within this scene are going to discover it and i feel like you know this may continue to be an album that kind of you know flies under the radar and only it'll probably have its small subset of diehard fans but uh might not get a lot of exposure otherwise. You know, in in the last year or two, there has been a really that kind of big like emo revival. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. I think when a lot of people hear emo, they think of like uh, 2000s like pop punk, right? And, like, yeah. Dashboard Confessional, uh, and they're not thinking of like the Promise Ring and bands like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is really what emo has always been. There's been a huge revival of that, which uh, excites me. So the fact that I hadn't heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, personally is is very exciting because there's been uh, a lot of good releases and i think modern baseball and touche amori have had mm-hmm. yep. uh, good releases this year yeah these guys uh, are so on yeah, a, i'm gonna be all board run for cover which i think um they put out some of uh touche amori's records as well and uh yeah part of that whole scene kind of it was fun seeing them with ceremony because that's a band that is very uh, very different in style from uh from pity sex but i think they they had some common ground just in a lot of the influences that they were drawing from. And I was really glad I got to see them at that show together. Cause it was a really, uh, really interesting kind of mixed bill. You know, there's definitely, I think a lot of crossover fans. I'm definitely a fan of both bands, but, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, that's the kind of tour where I think both bands maybe got exposure to, uh, to, you know, make some new fans that maybe wouldn't have been fans before. If someone is listening to this and they're like, well, I'm not I'm not sold on the album. I don't know. That's a big time investment. Uh, could you pitch one song to them from the album to kind of uh, to hook them? So my favorite song in the album is uh, the very first one, which is called A Satisfactory World for Reasonable People, <laughs> uh, which I love the title of right off the bat. It's got a little bit of kind of everything I like about the band and about the album. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, the vocal parts are split pretty evenly between, uh, Brennan and Brittany's, uh, vocals. It's got lyrics that are really evocative and some of my favorite lyrics that I heard in any music this year. Um, the very opening few lines of the, the first verse are, uh, saw you dancing on TV, lick the glass, you notice me. I'm in bed with my touch screen, extra bright and extra clean. Um, which is just an image that I really like and kind of fell in love with right away. Um, it's this very intimate feeling kind of very visual lyric where you can picture the singer just in their bed crowded around a glowing touchscreen, which is, uh, something very specific and very of the moment, but, um, but also feels kind of universal and not in a way Mm -hmm. that I think will, feel dated like some other kind of hyper specific references can and um 
it's yeah it's just got this uh this real kind of unique feeling to those lyrics i think the whole album has and uh the sort of repeated refrain of this song which i think kind of uh goes along with a lot of the other stuff on the album Mm -hmm. too is nothing matters in a dream which is you know this kind of sentiment that has sort of a mix of emotions behind it where on the one hand it's kind of liberating and kind of freeing this idea of nothing mattering in a dream but at the same time feels kind of desperate oh absolutely like kind of a uh, a need for escape which is something you know that feeling of desperation uh comes back again and again through the album i think and a lot of the other uh lines in the album and the very last song uh weapon beggars has a uh a line that i really like that has that same feeling behind it when I feel good, don't you feel good? Which sums up that kind of same mixed emotion of a relationship of wanting to uh, wanting to both feel just as good at the same time and, you know, the kind of frustration behind maybe that not happening. Um, yeah, lyrics that, yeah, I think really speak to me on this album. Awesome, awesome. So Pity Sex, White Hot Moon. Uh, Michael, where can people find you online? Um, so I, uh, co-host a podcast called Nameless Cults, which is about horror movies and weird fiction and, uh, cool stuff like that. So, um, you can hear me there and, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ken Frankenstein. And I also play music in uh, a couple of bands in the Boston area. Uh, one of them's called Disputed Zones. Another one's called Boys Room. Uh, and both of those have music up on Bandcamp. So, uh, you can find that as well. Thank you very much for stopping by, and I hope you have an awesome 2017. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. And we are with Nick Lewandowski. Nick, how are you? Punk ain't no religious cult. Punk means thinking for yourself. You ain't hardcore just because you spike your hair when a jock still lives inside your head. Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks, fuck off. Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks, fuck Fuck off. off. I am doing pretty well. Um, I've got a certain movie on the mind that that song reminds me of now. Uh, What movie is that? It is motherfucking Green Room. Yeah, let's talk Green Room. I'm excited to talk about this because this is my favorite movie of the year. Oh, I haven't seen a whole ton this year, but I doubt even if I saw every movie, I doubt there would be one better than Green Room. Uh, I was offered a free preview screening of it uh, by my local draft house, and I was just like, okay, I've heard good things about his previous movie, Blue Ruin, so I'm going to check it out. Uh, And I went to it, and it just kind of fucking blew me away. Yeah, and I'm gonna. In case I didn't do it in the in the bumpers or at the beginning of the show, since I haven't actually recorded that yet. Uh, spoilers: If you have not seen Green Room, turn this off right now or skip ahead to the next section uh, because I imagine we are going to spoil the shit out of a movie that should not oh, be yeah. spoiled. Oh yeah, no, like it, it's not really about like the spoilers. It's just like you need to experience. Like it's not like it's a twisty movie, like you know, spoiling a Shyamalan movie. It's just like something you should experience for yourself. And just let it happen to you without any sort of like outside interference because it's it's a hell of a movie. Yeah, I watched it in a room full of about six or seven friends who uh, we had had a couple of beers. We were like celebrating that night. Uh, they were looking for a horror movie. 
I, I suggested that. We turned it on. There was not a sound in the room until that movie ended. You could cut the tension with a knife. I've never experienced a movie that translates the tension in the film to the tension of the viewer so, so well. Oh, yeah. No, like it just it really just it really draws you in with a really absurd premise just like it, it sounds like it's kind of a tr- going to be a trashy like 80s style horror movie of like you know a punk band gets stuck in a neo-nazi bar and has to fight their way out that's that's 80s as, that's like 80s horror is all fuck but Saulnier plays it completely straight and to a really terrifying degree like there's just some absolutely nasty gnarly stuff in that movie yeah and the cast oh uh, is God. pretty incredible you've got uh, Patrick Stewart as the villain. Uh, oh, man, a, a yeah. A very rare turn for Patrick Stewart. You don't see him. Uh, the only other place I could think of I saw him as a villain was in a BBC uh, Hamlet. He played <laughs> the villain there, and he was great. He's just, you don't expect him to play like a, a Pacific Northwest redneck, really, yeah. ever. Yeah, no, just like the the turn of having, you know, a, you know, one of the great dramatic actors who's, you know, kind of mostly known for a... Uh, a cheesy sci-fi show star trek the next generation having him play a straight-up neo-nazi especially in the year 2016 before shit went south like it was a really yeah. unexpected thing to see even though in all the marketing and stuff they advertise you know him as one of the big names it was still really weird seeing patrick stewart as a neo-nazi but he added a level of like gravitas and menace to the villain that really it needed someone like uh patrick stewart there just for like the scene like, uh, right before, like, um, Ant- Anton Yelchin, R.I.P., man, R. I. Uh, P., yeah. gets his arm hacked the fuck up. Like, just that scene, like, he, the, him trying to convince them to come out of the room and give themselves up and they're not going to hurt them. Like, that scene is just, like, he's just got this menace to him, even when he's trying to play it calm and relaxed. He's still kind of menacing. Yeah, and you, he's so, he brings in, even though he's not using his British accent, he brings in this almost, because he's the king of the neo-Nazis, kind of, he <laughs> brings in this kind of aristocracy to him. Like, he's willing to attempt to to bargain and negotiate with these people, even though there's this undercurrent of everything he's saying is bullshit. There's still this part of you that, because it's Patrick Stewart, you're like, oh, like, I almost, I almost believe him. Yeah, you almost you almost want to believe that they're going to get out alive. And like that also goes for uh, Macon Blair, who was uh, re- returning, one of uh, Saunier's um, major a- go-to actors, if you can say a guy who's done three movies as a go-to. Uh, he's also in a murder party, and he's the uh, main character, the hero, I guess, for lack of a better word, in Blue, uh, Blue Ruin. See, I need to get around to seeing Blue, Ru- uh, Blue oh, Ruin. Man. I've heard so much great stuff about it. Um, initially, I liked Blue Ruin better than Green Room, but the more I've been thinking back on Green Room, I like Green Room just kicks its ass. Like, I think Blue Ruin is probably like better, like more tightly made and more narratively cohesive than uh, Green Room. But Green Room just kicks your ass back and forth mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah, and uh, there's also uh, the, the a, a very few uh, women in the cast, but the ones who are there, it's uh, Alia Shawkat from Arrested Development and Imogene Poots, the greatest actress, the greatest named actress yeah. in history. Yeah, and we get a reunion of the Fright Night remake here with uh, Anton Yelchin and Imogen Poots. Oh, I didn't know Imogen Poots was in uh, Fright, the Fright Night remake. I've heard the Fright Night remake is actually way better than it has any right to be, which is good. I yeah. like the original a lot. Same. Uh, your expectations will probably be low going into it since you've seen the original. And it's, yeah. you know, David Tennant's fun. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, oh, wait, no, is it David Tennant or is yeah. it uh, – yeah, it is him, right? Yeah, I think it's David Tennant, uh, the the not go doctor from uh, – Or am I thinking of Colin Farrell? Because Colin Farrell plays a villain in something as well. 
I'm, now I'm now I'm getting mixed up with my my like remakes that shouldn't exist. Uh, Colin Farrell right was here. in a total recall. I think David Tennant's in Fright Night. No, it, it is Colin Farrell. Oh, really? And, and David Tennant, both okay. of them are in it. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Fright Night remake. Uh, you know, also when we we're gonna flash back to the 2011 version of this show that didn't exist and say yeah, it's it's kind of worth seeing. Anyway, <laughs> Green Room. Um, also, one of the most visceral films i have ever seen oh, i'm not sure God. if i'd outright call it gory because i feel like gory implies like in your face blood splashing everywhere yeah. this is just real like you imagine that's what someone would look like if they got uh, stabbed or shot in the face uh, or getting their stomach cut open with a box yes. knife fuck oh that that's that's the most disturbing scene i think i've ever seen in a movie just Something about just like the way it's done, and like right coming right off the heel of Anton Yelch and getting his uh, arm cut up by machetes, and him just pulling in the door, and it's just all mangled, and you're like, "Ugh, that's nasty." And then Imogene Pooch just takes a knife to the guy and just opens him up. Ugh. Yeah, the movie does does something really interesting where it it's kind of a siege movie. It puts all of the people that you want to survive in one room as other people are trying to mm-hmm. get in. And then in one swoop, it eliminates like two thirds of those numbers. Yeah, it's... in the most brutal way you can kind of imagine. And you're left thinking, where the hell are we going now? Nobody is safe, and it's 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 a heart attack from beginning to end. Yeah, no, the it's definitely a siege movie. It's like the and it's it's people trapped in hostile territory, which is different from like the like a. Probably the grandfather of Siege movies, Assault on Precinct 13. Like, mm-hmm. that one is people trapped in friendly ter- territory surrounded by enemies. The green room is just a group, like, already, the, before shit goes south, they're already in an, un- an unfriendly environment because they're playing a neo-Nazi bar, and their first part of their set is them opening with a cover of Nazi punks, fuck off. Mm-hmm. And so they're just from the beginning, they're antagonizing everyone around them. And then they're stuck in a neo-Nazi bar with a bunch of angry neo-Nazis who want to kill them. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's a brutal movie. I, it doesn't end the way you probably think it will, which it's it's a roller coaster. Everyone plays their role fantastically well. What did you oh, specifically yeah. love if you had to pick out one or two things about it that made this stand out in your tw- uh, by the end of 2016? I think just like the sheer like brutality of it all, just how how swift the the deaths are, like it just really they really just come out of left field and just blindside you, especially with just how graphic some of the imagery is. And also like I'm a punk rock nerd, I love uh, all the old school punk rock stuff. So having having a, a band play of uh, Nazi punks fuck off as the worst idea in the world. Like I, I thought that was going to happen. I was so happy when it did. And, you know, bad brains playing over the end credits, like the ne- very next day I had to listen to all of uh, bad Brains self-titled again. Yeah. It's so just I'm... so good. Uh, quick question then. Uh, yes. Who's your desert Island band? Oh, uh, the desert Island record. Oof. Um, I would probably go with uh, Drive Like Jehu's Yank Crime. Okay. That one's that one is one that is really weird and out there a little bit. It's 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 very hard to peg down what that one is. It's like it's punk rock definitely. It's em- like old school emo but more like technically complex. Like they add some Ennio Morricone and Noi in their mm. sound. And okay. it, they definitely come from more of a heavy metal background than 
uh, other emo bands. But it's it's an interesting listen. It's one of my absolute favorites, and it's got some really cool guitar sounds that I've never heard anyone else emulate. So we've got a little bit time, a little bit of time left over. Mm-hmm. Uh, real quick, since I'm excited to see it as well, uh, hype me up for Shin Godzilla. Oh I know my you god, to talk about that if you had some time. Oh yeah, I could definitely talk about Shin Godzilla. Uh, it's it's really exactly what you want from like a Godzilla and Godzilla alone movie. Um, it's it's you know the basic story is just Godzilla attacks and the Japanese government has to stop the threat of Godzilla from killing their people and later they have to stop Godzilla they have to stop Godzilla and outside forces that uh, have different ways of dealing with Godzilla uh it's it's a really interesting movie in that uh most of it is just Godzilla wrecking shit and then boardrooms but it manages to make the boardrooms just as exciting as Godzilla just going to town on Tokyo all the um like back and forth all the dialogue is incredibly snappy and it's very very quickly paced and snappy in the way it just zooms from boardroom to boardroom. And it's, it adds some humor at just how terrible this bureaucracy is and this hierarchy for actually dealing with a catastrophe on the level of Godzilla. Like one of my favorite parts in the whole movie is when uh, there's a bunch of guys in a helicopter in helicopters with their missiles pointed at Godzilla and they're waiting for the or- order to fire. And it goes up like four or five levels to the very top of the command chain and then the guy who's running the entire country says, okay, fire. And then it just follows it all the way back down to the individual pilots telling, uh, getting, getting the order to fire. Huh. It's really an interesting look at the bureaucracy um, and also a little bit of a post-Fukushima information where yeah. the energy companies are uh, at fault more so than nuclear weapons. Cool, cool, yeah. awesome. I know that... Uh... Cage Club regular Mike Manzi was super hyped for that movie, and he uh, he loved it. So I've had a lot of people telling me that uh, I, I've loved Godzilla since I was a kid. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to finally catch that film. Yeah, it's it's really good, and uh, it's I will say it is much better than Godzilla 2014. <laughs> I just watched that one last night. Nowhere near as good as Shin Godzilla. Like Shin Godzilla is just thoroughly through and through, just entertaining. It balances a large cast of characters and a lot of very heavy ideas. And it deals with them in really fun, exciting, and interesting ways. And it never loses the stakes. It never loses just what is at stake. And even though Godzilla looks kind of goofy and he's really different from how he used to be in other uh, Godzilla movies, it's still very interesting what they do with Godzilla on a biology level. Cool. Well, I am very excited for that. Uh, Nick, I hope you have an awesome 2017. Thank uh, you. Where, where can people find you online? Um, I'm mostly online on my Twitter account at OPencilSharp, which is a Drive Like Jehu reference. Um, and you'll mostly see me tweeting about movies and yelling about politics into the void. That's pretty much what uh, Twitter is in general, at least that last half, especially yep. for the next couple of years. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. You too. Midnight rolls around. I thought you heard me sing your spirit sound